0: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It is Thursday, January 6th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Happy to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com. For the free podcast that's every day, including Bonus Benson on the weekends, GuyBensonShow.com. We've got a big program ahead. By the way, if you don't know me, political editor at TownHall.com, Fox News contributor. I was co-hosting Outnumbered today. On the radio side, a big lineup as usual. Katie Pavlich is going to be here this hour. Looking forward to catching up with my friend and colleague in a few minutes. Brett Bayer, chief political anchor. At Fox News, of course, host of Special Report. I was on his panel last night. He will weigh in and join us in the next hour. And in our final hour, former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy on the January 6th anniversary and also the new soft on crime prosecutor in New York City. A lot to get to today. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you stats on COVID as we do every single day. The case count in the United States continues to rise. 57.7 million cases. That's official. But the real number, as we know, is far higher. The death toll is now 830,549. That's the number of Americans who have died over the course of this pandemic from or with COVID. Though well, one year ago today, we were on the air. This show was coming on the air, and I had a game plan that day. You'll recall that the previous evening, Republicans had managed to lose both U.S. Senate seats in Georgia. We had covered those races very closely. We had brought the program down to Georgia to cover those races for a day or two. And it was a really important Series of elections because it would decide the balance of power in the United States Senate. And those were very costly losses. I mean, not just figuratively, but I would say literally, based on what a united Democrat controlled Washington, D.C. has managed to do already in the first roughly year of the Biden administration with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Thank goodness it has not been even worse because of a few people who still seem to maintain their sanity on spending and policy issues like Joe Manchin. But those were really important races. The Republicans had lost both of them the night before. I was unhappy about that. Had a whole plan to break it down and a lot of analysis and so on. But I had Fox News Channel on in my home studio and – This attack on the Capitol had been underway, and the visuals were just absolutely shocking. The images of people breaking windows, surging past barricades, beating savagely police officers. I mean, it was the stuff of nightmares something out of a bad movie, except it was real. So I was watching it off my screen and trying to relay to the radio audience what I was seeing, sort of reverting back to my old sports play-by-play background and trying to contextualize things in real time, which was a challenge. Because it was also sickening. I felt sick for those three hours on the air and beyond, but I had to really focus and channel my energies to bringing you all the best information we could get. And I just want to go back and play some clips from that show. Because, look, there are lots of things to be said about January 6th. The overreaction in some quarters to this day, people fixating on it. The underreaction in other cases. The question of what accountability should look like the efforts very much being stepped up by the Democrats to exploit what happened that day for naked partisan power grabs that are tangentially related or unrelated. That stuff is all important. But what matters most, I think, today on the one-year anniversary is to say what happened clearly. And in a nutshell, what happened was that we witnessed a national disgrace. That can never be allowed to happen again. There was an angry mob, much of which was violent, that stormed the U.S. Capitol building in order to interrupt the counting of the electoral votes of the 2020 election. This was an effort to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power in the United States of America, which is sacred in this country. The rioters were inspired by a series of lies. Lies told to them chiefly by former President Donald Trump and a few of his reckless allies. The lies basically said that Trump had really won the election. Biden wasn't the rightful winner. There was cheating. There was rigging. And the rightful winner was not going to be reflected in the vote count. That was the lie. I call it a lie because it is one. Trump lost. Biden won. There are plenty of reasons to tighten up election laws. That's not Jim Crow 2.0. We don't need to make permanent a bunch of pandemic-era changes to our elections, which is what Democrats want to do, and then pretend opposition to that is voter suppression. I reject that. But the truth is, the facts are, That Joe Biden won the election. He won every state that he carried. Without exception. Donald Trump lost. Donald Trump could not countenance the fact that he lost. And so he spun this tale, whether he believed it truly in his heart of hearts or not. He told a lot of people from a very powerful microphone that the opposite was true. And a lot of people believed him. Now, if he wanted to prove his claims... If they had been true claims, he and his lawyers had an opportunity to establish that in courts of law all across the country, in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, in a bunch of these places, Michigan, and over and over again, they failed to do so. They didn't really approach proving anything. In fact, there were multiple times, high-profile times, where they were given an opportunity, all right, bring us the evidence, show us the proof, and they didn't even try under oath in a court of law. That's why I feel very confident, I don't like saying it, but I feel confident saying what Trump said was a lie, and the truth is Joe Biden won the election legitimately. And people who didn't want to believe that, the hardcore ones were whipped up into a frenzy by these baseless, groundless, unsubstantiated claims. Including on the day itself, a rally was planned, not coincidentally, for that day. Where the counting was happening. Trump was pressuring his vice president to abandon his constitutional oath. And to embrace this totally wacko, cockamamie theory that the vice president can just reject slates of electors. Say, no, we're going to kick this back down to the House. Like, one person can do that? It doesn't exist. That power doesn't exist. And Mike Pence, to his eternal credit, refused to go along with it. I mean, can you imagine an argument in early 2025 that Kamala Harris had the unilateral power to reject slates of electors, reject election results that she didn't like? based on some theory out there that, you know, Biden would be blithering about. Just think about that hypothetical. Trump was pressuring Pence. When the rioters, the hordes were at the gates and busting through, he was still attacking Pence, saying that he didn't have the courage to do the right thing. And of course, the mob was chanting things like, hang Mike Pence. So that's why in my book, the former president bears the lion's share of the responsibility for the national disgrace that we all saw play out in real time. And I think acknowledging that is important because telling the truth, even when it's painful, is important. And in this case, it's pretty damn painful. Here's what it sounded like that day when I was just watching the screen and giving running commentary, one of the things that I mentioned was this, in cut 26. We talk a lot about law and order, how we're a nation of laws. We have a constitution that we follow. There's a way to do things, and there's a way not to do things. And week after week, month after month, last year, especially over the course of the summer, we saw some of these mass protests over another issue spill into violence, with mob rule, with chaos, Antifa and other activists setting fires to things and and that sort of thing. And we were correctly, utterly appalled by that. We denounced it as lawlessness. We were furious with people who sort of equivocated about what was legitimate, quote-unquote, when it comes to rioting. Those of us who support law enforcement and oppose mob rule and oppose rioting have to have our stomachs turn at the visuals Of the same coin, but flipped onto the other side. And it was stomach-turning. And it felt visceral and disgraceful in the moment. It's not like something where it really had to sink in. What we were watching spoke for itself. People singing the national anthem while they were beating police officers... I mean, yes, there are plenty of people who treat January 6th to this day like it's the number one story in the country and the whole democracy and the whole republic is on the brink of becoming, I don't know what, a dictatorship. There's a lot of hyperbole out there. But to minimize what happened, to look away from it, to sort of airbrush it, I think is a disservice to the country. And I said this also, on our live coverage a year ago and cut 27. Even if you think that I am wrong and a bunch of other conservatives are wrong about the legitimacy of the election, even if you believe in your heart of hearts that Donald Trump was robbed of this election, I would try to point you to the facts and to the resolution of one court case after another. But you might not want to hear that. Fine, let's put that off to the side. What you do in response to that in this country, in a constitutional republic, is you have your members who represent you, elected members of our government. You have them speak on your behalf, and a number of them were objecting to counting these electors, members of both chambers, and they were going to have a debate about Arizona, right? And then Georgia is going to be six states in all likelihood. Now, that is all on pause right now because our leaders have been evacuated under this threat, With tear gas inside the Capitol, people bashing down the doors and windows of the House chamber in order to take over. I mean, it is absolute abject lawlessness. It is completely unacceptable and disgusting. On that show a year ago, we spoke to a number of members of Congress who were on Capitol Hill. Some of them holed up in their offices. It was a very frightening day. It could have gotten a lot worse, actually. Thank goodness it didn't. But we spoke with Congressman Kinzinger from Illinois. We spoke with Congressman Gallagher from Wisconsin. The next day we got some reflections from Congressman Crenshaw out of Texas. All younger guys who gave us some time in the middle of that insanity. And when we come back, I want to play for you some of what Gallagher and Crenshaw said in the heat of the moment because – I think part of remembering what happened a year ago and making sure that it cannot happen again is not letting go of some of the outrage that was justified 365 days ago today. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will get to that flashback audio, then move on to other subjects. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be right back after this.
0: The Guy Benson Show. We took it.
2: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. It is January 6th. I know a lot of people in the media are just sort of wall-to-wall remembrance and flashbacks and all of that. We are doing some of that here because it is significant. We're not doing three hours on this, but it is worth recollecting together because I think a lot of people had... A strong sense of revulsion in that immediate moment and for a day or two. And then I think the toxicity of tribal politics started to take back over. And we're seeing that still on the right. We're seeing it on the left with people saying, oh, well, we now have to pass our solutions on voting rights because January 6th. No, that is obviously cynical. It cheapens what the message ought to be about January 6th. And yet that's the decision that Democrats have made. So when people tune them out and disregard them, including persuadable people, they can blame themselves because that's a choice that they've made. I saw Chuck Schumer waving away the idea of reforming the Electoral Count Act, which I think would be an actual productive thing to do here. He said, no, that's a distraction from the real issue. No, it's not. It is the real issue. But they want to move on to their own agenda. Surprise, surprise. Nevertheless, one year ago, we had Congressman Mike Gallagher a Republican from Wisconsin who we reached by phone. He was on Capitol Hill during all of this. Here's part of what he told us that day. Cut 28. I mean, it was absolute chaos and insanity and, um, you know, quickly spiraled out of control. You had protesters.
4: We, we, you know, we started hearing flashbangs going off, which was presumably the Capitol police trying to push the
2: protesters back. The protesters violently clashing with the Capitol police, All of a sudden, they breached the security perimeter. Earlier in the day, they had, you know, had to uh, evacuate one of the office buildings because they breached the security perimeter there. Then Vice President Mike Pence is rushed off the House floor by Secret Service. The House floor door is barricaded. Windows are broken. Rioters are are running rampant through Statuary Hall. And then someone gets shot. I mean, someone got shot today in the United States Capitol. Uh, You know, it's insane. I mean, it's Banana Republic stuff. The next day, Dan Crenshaw, Republican from Texas, looked back after just one day of perspective. We now have hundreds more days, but this was his recap on January the 7th on this program. Congressman Crenshaw, cut 29.
5: It was bad. Um, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to glorify it. There's no way to excuse it. It was um, far and away the wrong thing to do. And, um, it, it was, it was sad to see. It was, it was a desecration. You know, it's not as if people came in and prayed. Like, that's not what happened. Uh, people came in, stole some things, climbed over walls, took funny selfies. Um, a woman died. And, um, because they were, because at that moment they were, they were about to breach the house floor where, which was the last ground for members to be barricaded. I, I wasn't in the house at the time. I was I still hadn't made it to the floor. It was in my office. which, Well, actually, it was not in my office because prior to this breach, I, was, I had to evacuate my office because of a bomb threat, a bomb that was just across the street. And they found multiple other pipe bombs devices throughout the Capitol yesterday. I mean, this was serious.
2: It was. There were pipe bombs at the RNC and the DNC. I don't think they ever solved that. Who planted those? Frightening. A year ago today. When we come back, shifting gears, Katie Pavlich joins us on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
0: you're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day at GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Katie Pavlich, editor at TownHall.com, where I'm her colleague, and a Fox News contributor. I'm also her colleague here at Fox. She's all over the place. You see her on The Five. You see her everywhere, including, I guess, most recently, Miami. You were in Miami, Katie. You looked pretty great. Did you see AOC <laughs> I or was Eric in Swalwell?
6: place of Miami. Yes, I was there as a non-hypocrite, so <laughs> right, and, uh, yeah. luckily I did not run into AOC or
2: Eric Swalwell on my amazing two-day trip to Miami. <laughs> did I see that you guys were barracuda fishing? I mean, what? Like you're already much more of a badass than most people, especially me. But barracuda <laughs> fishing is next-level stuff.
6: So it's, it was my husband's birthday, and I had worked through Christmas and New Year's, so we wanted to just take a quick little trip away. We've been talking about wanting to go deep-sea fishing. And two years ago, to the day, we were actually in South Africa shark cage diving. Of course. And, then, uh, on, mon- and on Monday, we instead went deep-sea fishing. I was hoping to catch a shark. I am the worst fisherwoman in the entire world. I'd never catch anything. But luckily, my husband, whose birthday it was, caught this massive 50-inch Barracuda, which the fishing guide said was one of the biggest ones they've caught all year. Now he probably tells it to everybody, but this thing was massive. And let me tell you, guy, like I caught a few on the line and they just got off my line, but reeled one probably like halfway in. And I worked out and I'm pretty strong, but deep sea fishing is really hard. (laughs) It's really hard.
2: It's exhausting in some ways with like the reeling in, although I think the fight is sort of the thrill for a lot of sport fishermen. To me, I just don't yeah. do terribly well on boats. That's the problem.
6: Oh, yeah.
2: Right where you're bobbing around yeah, and like you've okay. got the exhaust. I would I would have probably been in real trouble, but it looked like you guys had an absolute blast. Before we move on from the Miami thing, I just find it so interesting, right? You have these Democrats who dump on Florida for two years. It's just, you know, the worst place on Earth. It's run by Ron Santis, blood on his hands, everyone's dying. And then they choose to vacation there, or in Swallow's case, bring his kid there. And there's just kind of a a disconnect. I think they just want to kind of enjoy things that the rest of us want to, where it's allowed in Florida.
6: Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's that they... I've I've started comparing this power trip that everybody's on to, like, that one TSA agent who just has to tell you what to do with everything and is yelling at you even though you're doing everything the right way. You know, that's who people like Eric Swalwell and AOC are. They really enjoy being able to control people's lives. They get a high off of it. But they're not willing to live by their own rules because their own rules prevent them from – Enjoying their life, and they're <laughs> special people. So they're just going to do what they want to do, and they're going to tell the rest of the peons uh, and the people who they're supposed to be representing or uh, you know listening to and being respectful of that. You know, they can't really live their life, and that their kids should be eating uh, on the cold cement floor outside in New York City, uh, distance from their friends in 30 degree weather. I mean, it just is. It's beyond even hypocrisy. It's criminal and disgusting what they've done to people's lives and they continue to do while they, you know, live the life that they want to uh, and hope that no one's looking. And then when there's a response, people like AOC say things like, well, you're only criticizing my trip to Florida because you want to have sex with me. I mean, yeah. it's
2: just so. Well, that's childish. not the case. Not the case here for me. I can guarantee her that, and I'm, st- <laughs> right. I'm still going to criticize her for it for a number of reasons. Now, Katie, what you were just saying there, you were just sort of like uh, like channeling. I think what a lot of people really feel. You sound like a woman of the people. This is why I have to ask you this. I don't know if you saw just before the holidays this hilarious rumor that somehow got started that I was going to run for the governorship in Colorado. <laughs> yes. Despite not living there, uh, and so you know we're still looking at it very strongly, very powerfully. But uh, can I start a rumor that you're running against sure. Mark Kelly for Senate in your home state of Arizona? Can we like can we fake that into existence?
6: I mean, I I have to say, guy, I don't think you're the first one to start the rumor, but you can restart the rumor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is something that's come up a few times throughout the past. Ten years, and uh, but I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs>
2: okay, right. all right, we'll leave it at that. Maybe one day, maybe someday soon, very soon. Maybe
6: someday soon, maybe never. I'm just focused on my tasks ahead of me, guys. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, it's I have exactly... no intention
6: of higher office whatsoever
2: <laughs> at this time. You have to I'm really say at just this time.
6: on my my duties now at this time. yeah,
2: yeah, that's that is exactly what you say when you're about to run. Okay, uh, someone who did run for president and failed miserably, but then got put on the ticket anyway and is now vice president, is Kamala Harris. Have you seen this story? Another one of her top staffers has left. I mean, there's been a bit of an exodus. I saw the quote that she is a soul destroying boss. Uh, I know that just like AOC, said all the criticisms of her are rooted in, like, sexual frustration. Kamala Harris's version of that is all the criticisms of her are rooted in racism and sexism. Are her own staffers racist and sexist? I'm starting to wonder.
6: Well, um, according to her, maybe they are. (laughs) But this most recent staffer is uh, a young black man who's going to work for the Congressional Black Caucus. So I guess you could continue to say that he's a sexist, but you Mm. can't say that he doesn't like uh, the vice president because of her race, because they share their race. Um, No, I think it's becoming very clear that the vice president is a terrible boss. Um, You don't see this mass exodus on the presidential side of the White House. You You know, their argument has been that this is a very high profile job. It's very stressful, which is all true. It is a very difficult job and nobody, you you know, lasts for a whole term usually. And there is a lot of turnover just because of the stress of the job. But the fact that she's had this much turnover and the comments that have come from people um, and the things that she says publicly and just refusing to read her briefings, walking right into all these traps that they then try to clean up for her. uh, It's very clear that she's having a tough time just in leadership uh, as uh, the vice presidential candidate. But Boy. this goes back to the lack of vetting for her, right, on the campaign trail. Nobody thought to interview some of her Senate staffers to see if she was a good boss, boss what her leadership skills were, what her, uh, her decision-making process is. No, they just ignored that and allowed for no vetting. And now all of a sudden we're wondering how it is that we're now just finding out that she may be a terrible person to work for.
2: Yeah, and it goes back not just to the campaign or her Senate office, but even local politics in California. She's had huge churn on staff for a long time. And you, you just sort of wonder, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe I'm deluding myself, but if I were in some sort of position of power and you know climbing the ranks, and at every level of power, I just had a mass exodus of staff, many of whom left very embittered, I just wonder, like, you wake up if you're Kamala Harris ever in the morning and say, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I need to do this differently. I mean, I guess the argument is, look, she's vice president, so it's worked out okay for her. But it seems like the common denominator here is pre- it's pretty clear.
6: Yeah, I don't. I've, I've never really understood how people like her make it as far as they do by treating everybody around them like garbage. Uh, because it I found for that some you, need a, you need a you know you need a team to help you and you can grow together. And as they say, all boats rise in the harbor, right? Um, but I don't think that she has any kind of self reflection. Uh, there's been people leaving for months and months now, and nothing has changed with her behavior. People continue to leave of her. Her say nothing about yes, I've seen the reports about my staff being unhappy. We're dealing with it internally and I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that they are comfortable working in this office. She's done nothing to at least publicly cultivate a better working environment, right? Um, And I think when you're as narcissistic as she is, that you don't look in the mirror and say, maybe I should change some things. You just put it on everybody else and tell them to deal with it.
2: Speaking of blame shift, I want to get to the at least for the next few days still, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, a Democrat. I know some people in the press are confused. They want to think it's uh, it's already Glenn Youngkin. No, he's, he's, not, he's not there yet. He's waiting in the wings. He's going to have an inauguration down in Richmond, if anyone can get there, depending on how the roads are looking, because I don't know if you were back yet from Miami, if this was happening while you were down in the sun, but we had big snow in the D.C. area, and I-95 was a parking lot for more than a day. I mean, there were people stuck, including U.S. senators, stuck for more than 26 hours at freezing temperatures, in cars that weren't moving. It was a complete disaster. They didn't pre-treat the roads. They have all these excuses why. So Northam, he didn't declare a state of emergency, by the way, ahead of time to get resources in place like they've never seen snow before. So Northam is uh, sort of lashing out at critics. He's saying a few different things in interviews, including... In Cut 32, Katie, he was blaming – of course, not himself, certainly not the government. He was blaming the
7: drivers for being out there at all. Listen to Cut 32. We knew that the storm was coming. Uh, we put warnings out. Um, why don't you start asking some of these individuals that were out on the highway for hours, one, did you know about the storm? Uh, two, why did you feel it was so important to drive through – uh, such a snowstorm? And, and three, in hindsight, do you think maybe you should have stayed home or wherever you were rather than getting out on Interstate 95? I think that would be interesting to hear that side of. Well, maybe because, Katie, they thought that the government would be basically competent
2: and they wouldn't be stuck in their cars for 26 hours like U.S. Senator Tim Kaine was. I don't know. Is that a shot that Northam is taking at Tim Kaine? Why did you feel like you had to go back to D.C. and vote in the Senate why don't you talk to those people about why they weren't listening to our warnings? He also, Northam, had this complaint in Cut Thirty-One,
7: uh, and I hate to vent on you right now, Matt, but I am getting sick and tired of people talking about what went wrong. Uh, I think we'll be very thankful that nobody got hurt, nobody lost their lives. Interstate Ninety-Five is up and running, and people are back at home and back to work. So, he's sick and tired of people asking what went wrong.
2: He's in charge just for a few more days, thank yeah. God, but lashing out at the, at the victims of government incompetence as it's, like, their fault, and then when being asked questions about accountability, he's sick and tired of those questions. It's shockingly arrogant. Wow, get that guy a
6: master class in leadership with those kinds of <laughs> skills and bad attitude. Uh, there was a story on foxnews.com, and they interviewed a, a bunch of the folks who were in this horrific situation. And one of the women was talking about how, you know, Northam says, is blaming them and saying, well, did you not know there was a storm coming? Why were you driving? She said that the signs on the freeway that you often see didn't say – hey, uh, be careful, there's a 27-hour pile-up ahead or winter weather advisory. Instead, they said, mask up, stop the spread. Yep. So this is a matter of of priorities for the governor. It is his fault. I-95 is not a side street, okay? It is one of the busiest highways in the country. It is the busiest highway. There's traffic on a good day on I-95 South and North. Uh, And for them to not have... A freeway treated and open for business is a complete failure. And he is lucky that people didn't die. If everyone were in electric cars, people probably would have died. Their people ran out of food. They ran out of water. They couldn't go anywhere. Uh, they were told to stay put, but, and they were also told to leave their cars. There's nowhere to walk. I mean, I was stuck in something similar 10 years ago. There was snow in here. And I was in my car for 12 hours. And luckily I got home. And that was, was a lot really more
2: scary. snow, by the way. That was a lot and it was more snow. snow. Because he said, Northam, in in that same interview, he said, this was a storm that we haven't seen for a long time. It was seven inches of snow.
7: Like, he was treating it like it was
2: Snowmageddon. It was not. It's like he just
6: quit after Democrats lost or something. I mean, total failure on his part. And it's very obvious he knows that because he's lashing out so harshly. Yeah, he's angry at the ingrates. the people who are
2: yeah who tried to get home or tried to go to work how dare they and he's so sick and tired of these people looking at a massive failure and asking what went wrong because in his mind it was a success maybe an extraordinary success just like afghanistan was in biden's mind it's, it's sort of uh it's well, amazing what like he
6: didn't have time to deal with it there were people on the road for 30 hours they were stuck for 30 hours it's yep. not like an hour in people were saying hey we need someone to rescue us this was a day and a half ordeal, and he yeah, what was really happening? did nothing about it. I
2: right. wonder—was did he sleep? Like that's the thing. I wonder if he was warm in bed and you know sleeping a full night's sleep that night. Do we have any idea of that? Was he I'm out sure there? He like, where else I, would he have
6: been? Good question.
2: Good question. Although asking that, Wasn't the
6: National Guard. was he wasn't yeah, called he, the National Guard. He, he did not do that full, either. You know, food, water. Exactly. That's right.
2: No, he's just so sick and tired of people asking these questions. And the last thing I'll say, and I've made this point now for the third consecutive day, then I'll stop beating the drum. The people who constantly want more government, always, forever and ever, this is the same group of people who are making excuses when the government falls flat on its face doing the bare minimum of an actual core function of the government. And I think it, it should be a lesson politically. Last question for you, Katie. I see on your Twitter feed, Fairly regularly, you note when the White House calls a lid on the day, meaning that there's going to be no more public events, no more news coming out of the White House. We're done. I think the other day was, you know, like one o'clock in the afternoon. They called a lid. They were calling lids during, I mean, there's so many different crises, but mid-crisis they're calling early lids somewhat regularly. And uh, Jen Psaki, circle back over there at the White House, she was sort of defending against us, talking about how unbelievably busy the president is All the time, here's what she said in cut ten.
4: And just finally, quickly on the speech tomorrow, you've given us a a little bit of a preview of the substance. Can you talk about how the president is spending this day in terms of preparing to deliver this speech? How how much is he focused on that today? Is he doing dry run
6: throughs? I mean, obviously, this is a significant moment. Sure. Look, I I would say first, um, yeah, I know the president doesn't have public events today. He does have a number of uh, meetings with. policy teams, uh, and that's often what he's doing behind the scenes. If you if he were standing here today, which I know he's always invited, is what you guys will say, but he would say we never give him any free time or any time to think, um, and that is probably true.
2: Katie, no free time, no time to think ever. I, I just, I don't know. He, he seems to have a lot of time to go to Delaware and unwind and walk the dog on the beach. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. but I mean this is a little hard to buy that he's just like the hardest working over scheduled president of all time which is the implication.
6: Also I'm sorry if you if you want to be the president of the United States you're signing up not to have free time. It's the same thing when press secretary Jen Psaki put on her vacation notice when Afghanistan was falling apart it's like no 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 like you were the the press secretary there is no vacation responder when you are the press secretary, just like Pete Buttigieg, you know, going on months and months of paternity leave. That's great, I think it's fine for a lot of people, different people to do that, but not when you're the transportation secretary and you sign up for a job that requires you to be accountable to the entire country dealing with big issues and and a
2: transportation crisis that was that was brewing at the time there's also that like there is something in his portfolio that is having massive ramifications i think that's part of the critique that people ignore because they want to say oh it's just like homophobic or whatever Uh, there's some ugliness directed at him but a lot of it also is substantive katie Pavlich, we've got to leave it there we're up on a break editor at townhall.com fox news contributor Uh, fisherwoman sort of extraordinaire, possible Senate candidate, one never knows. (laughs) Katie, always appreciate it. See you soon. Thanks, Guy. Bye. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
0: Guy Benson will be right back.
2: Back on the Guy Benson Show, Associated Press headline today, U.S. hospitals seeing a different kind of COVID surge this time. The report says this time around, Hospitals are dealing with serious staff shortages because so many healthcare workers are getting sick. I know in some cases they're bringing in COVID positive people. They fired unvaccinated people but COVID positive people they're bringing into work. Plus, they said a lot of people are coming in just to get tested because they can't find tests around. That's a failure. And a large share of patients, they say surprising, maybe not so surprising, two thirds in some places are testing positive while in the hospital for other reasons. That's not new. That's a phenomenon that's played out throughout the pandemic. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Don't go anywhere.
0: Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
2: A brand new hour now on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening live. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weeknight, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, is always free of charge and on demand. Around the clock. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow ends the day again in the red, down 170, closing at 36,236. Joining us now is Brett Baier, chief political anchor at Fox News Channel, also anchor of Special Report weeknights at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. I've had the privilege of joining him a few times this week. He's also host of the hit podcast, Brett Baier's All-Star Panel. Recommend that at foxnewspodcast.com. And a best-selling author of multiple books, the most recent of which went number one, To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and The Crisis, of 1876. Brett, I know we've done TV, but on the radio side, welcome back and Happy New Year.
3: Happy New Year. Thanks, Guy.
2: Great to have you. All right, so January 6th, obviously, the anniversary is today. We covered a little bit of it in the first hour. I had a few thoughts earlier on uh, Martha's show on the news channel. Just some of your reflections on that day covering it a year ago and where it stands, sort of where the politics of January 6th stand a year later.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back a year ago, I was actually on the air um, on Dana's show, which was in the afternoon at that point, and uh, we were covering the president's speech, uh, President Trump at the time, and uh, what was happening with these protests. And sorry about that, the doorbell's ringing. Um, uh, and, And it was surreal because we didn't have a good sense of exactly what was transpiring from the outside those images until we started hearing from people on the inside. And that is when we got the sense of the breaches and what that started to look like. And then soon thereafter, the um, the video came out and you really get a sense of, of what it was. Now, the politics of this, obviously, we're in a divided nation. And, you know, there are people who listen to the speeches today, Vice President Harris comparing January 6, 2021 to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, and they you know, don't see that and they get upset by it. Then there are other people who say you can't diminish or forget about that day because – democracy was under attack.
2: Well, I think you can, uh, so just, just to jump in, Brett. You can do I, both. Yeah, I'm one of those people who, who agrees with both of those things. I think she went way too far, and, and she's very clumsy at many things, and I think that that was ridiculous hyperbole. But the second part is also true. I think there's a good number of folks uh, who, who might bridge that divide, but it doesn't feel that way in Washington.
3: It doesn't. And it seems like you're on one side or the other side, and, um, but... You know there are people like you who understand and and um, think about that in in both ways. I, I do think that uh, this January sixth committee has an expiration date, and the expiration date is likely November twenty twenty two. Because I think there is a sense that at least right now Republicans have a significant advantage and are likely to take control of the House. At which time, that's the expiration date of the select committee, and what they're trying to do. I think we have yet to hear of how it's all going to lay out and what they're finding. And that's one of the reasons I asked the vice chair, uh, Liz Cheney, to come on special report tonight.
2: Yes. And that's interesting because she's a bit of a unicorn in Congress, at least right now, where she's got this strange new respect from people who would you know, trash her for her whole career. And then she's been kind of uh, you know, put out to pasture by her own party in a lot of ways. And some of that she's kind of leaned into. I think some of it she you know could have been slightly more diplomatic, although that's not how she is as a person. Uh, I think some of the criticism of her is is misplaced and unfair. That's a fascinating get. Uh, you know she's been very critical, including some folks on our own network. Talk about just that interview without tipping your hand necessarily for tonight. What can we look forward to with Liz Cheney on special Report?
3: Well, listen, I want to get to the substance, you know, what she can tell us about what they've learned so far and what the plan of attack is and how that is going to, you know, be laid out. I think that, you know, they have a plan to put out an interim report in the summer and a final report in November before the election. Um, What's the ultimate goal? It seems like the ultimate goal, Guy, is to prevent Donald Trump from running for president again. But I'd be interested to see how she handles that. And I think, you know, get reaction to the speeches today and some of the criticism that you're hearing from Republicans.
2: Yeah. I mean, it also seems like if they're going to put out their report just before the midterm elections, it's not unreasonable to say, gosh, that feels a little bit political in nature. I understand it's politics, but that kind of feeds in to some of the accusations against the committee and against the commission, whatever you want to call it that some conservatives have been making. Uh, I think there's also plenty of uh, completely correct attacks on how the Democrats, because we've talked about the Republicans, the Democrats seem to be taking the bloody shirt of January 6th and waving it to justify stuff that they've been trying to pass anyway on so-called voting rights and that sort of thing. If they don't, I guess my attitude is if they don't want january 6th to be politicized which is what they accuse the republicans of doing then maybe they shouldn't politicize it for their agenda the way that they are doing i mean that that's kind of the way i look at it
3: those bills were in the hopper before january 6th right those bills and what they wanted with that um has long been uh, the case even before all of this, and now this focus to tie those two things together, I agree. That's another question, actually, for Liz Cheney. You know, as a Republican, she, I assume, wants the Republicans to take control of the House. But that means the end of the select committee. And, you know, where does she stand on these voting rights bills that the Democrats are using the committee and its results to, uh, to pitch.
2: Yeah, and my understanding is she and, and all the Republicans are against them. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting wrinkle in this. On another legislative front, Brett, you were filling in on Fox News Sunday. Uh, you were the first sort of new host uh, after Chris Wallace uh, departed and instantly made some news uh, that went everywhere, Senator Joe Manchin making his announcement with you. Uh, And I gather you you didn't know it was coming, but he came out there and dropped the bomb. He was a no on Build Back Better. There's since been kind of this interesting flurry of news stories and chatter and talking heads about how, well, what the Democrats are really going to do is go back to the table and they're already negotiating. And they're going to do something maybe that's a little bit smaller that might work in his mind. And they're going to come and take another bite at the apple. Uh, That is possible. But I was struck Uh, just earlier this week by something that Joe Manchin said, a lot of people focused on him once again for the 8,000th time, saying that he's not going to change the filibuster. They ask him that constantly. The press lobbies him on that. But he also, just on Build Back Better, I think it was Chad, who asked him about negotiations with the White House. He said he has not said a word to anyone uh, since he did that interview with you. That unto itself kind of seems like news because it cuts against some of the narrative that's floating around this town.
3: Yeah, I agree. Well, first of all, when I did not know he was going to make that news, I knew he was going to make news, uh, and I had about twelve questions about the substance of Build Back Better. But oh, once we got to, yeah, once we got to that's a no. Uh, that changed the, uh, the dynamic. Uh, I'm also anchoring Fox News Sunday this coming weekend. There we go. Um, but but the I think that. You don't have to read between the lines with Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I think you can actually listen to what they say and Believe that they're it? saying what they mean. yeah, I, I don't think that there's this faint that it's going that they they are saying something that's um, out there. I, I think that Joe Manchin is saying yes, I'll negotiate if it's scaled back under that one point five trillion number. I mean, remember, Bernie Sanders was at six trillion. Then they got to $3.5 trillion, and there's all kinds of questions about whether those numbers were real because some of the programs, you know, were, were structured in a way where they ended in a year or two right. years as opposed to ten. He's saying, put it all on the table, fit under this umbrella, and I'm willing to talk about it. And I think that they're starting to realize that maybe that's the path that they should go.
2: Although they, I guess, according to him, haven't been talking about it yet in these intervening weeks, even though I, I, it sort of felt like the... The understanding was that they were already back at the grindstone. He said we haven't said a word about it. On the filibuster side of this, Brett, Kirsten Cinema reportedly telling her colleagues again, no, I'm not going to change the filibuster. We're not doing a carve-out for any particular issue like so-called voting rights. Manchin has said the same thing. And yet this is what Chuck Schumer has made a decision To pivot to, which is very confusing to me, setting aside all of his unbelievable hypocrisy on the filibuster, we did two segments on that with all the audio and the flashbacks yesterday here on the show, just as a matter of political tactics right now, his base is angry about the failure of Build Back Better, and he's like, okay, so we're going to pivot instead to voting rights where we also don't have the votes, which would require changing the rules for which we also don't have the votes. It just seems kind of odd to me and Schumer was asked also about sort of uh, th- these changes that are being proposed on a bipartisan basis to the Electoral Count Act going back through history you know something about that I believe and he dismissed that completely as irrelevant to the real story which in his mind is the democratic agenda I just don't quite understand what the end game is in his mind it's it's puzzling to me based on as Chad program always talks about the math, the math, the math. Again, they don't have it here.
3: Yeah, no, they don't. And I don't think that's judging by what, again, those senators have said that they're going to get it. I do think that it's about politics and you have the vote and you lose the vote. And then you make a case that we tried to push this, but we don't have the numbers. In order to get this over the finish line, you need to elect two other Democratic senators um, so that we have the numbers to get this through. And, you know, that's their pitch heading into the midterms. I don't think they have a ton to run on. Obviously, they passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, but the poll numbers are upside down on pretty much every major issue uh, as you look towards November of this year. And I think that that's the pitch. You have to give us more seats and we'll get this through.
2: But it seems like there's a couple – Demo- and this is this has long been the rumor, and we know a few of the names, but there are more Democrats in the Senate beyond just Manchin and Cinema, who do not want to change the filibuster, who do not want to have to vote on that, especially people up in sort of red or purple states for re-election. I think there's a risk to that strategy as well, electorally. They might see some upside. There's obviously a downside as well. Brett, last question here before we let you go. It's a subject that you've been covering a lot. Uh, This week, for obvious reasons, on Special Report, we are now, and and we're going to get into it in more detail coming up this hour here, but this uh, closure of the schools again in Chicago, the third largest city in the country, this fight breaking out now uh, among the the teachers union and some of the Democratic leaders in the city of Chicago, it's kind of interesting to watch as a political proposition, setting aside the substance and the policy and the harm to children, and, and we will very much cover that this hour. But this battle, to me, is fascinating. And it almost feels like one of the COVID-related end games might be playing out right now. I
3: agree with you. I think it's a massive issue. I think Democrats realize how politically sensitive it is. I think it's something that crosses party lines and ideologies. Republicans, independents, Democrats, if they're parents and they have kids sitting at home, uh, and they're not going to school, it's a major, major issue that affects everything. It affects the economy. It affects it affects everything. And uh, I think what's playing out in Chicago and some other school districts where they're battling this, uh, it will be a huge issue come, you know, in a few
2: months. Brett Baer, chief political anchor at Fox News. Special report at 6 p.m. Eastern tonight and every weeknight. Liz Cheney, a very interesting guest this evening. You can check out Brett's podcast as we always. Plug, Brett Baer's All-Star Panel, and you can buy all of his books. We recommend all of the books, but especially To Rescue the Republic. That's the most recent one, at Brett Baer on social media. Brett, always appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right, Guy. We'll see you. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will be back after this. The Guy Benson
0: Show. More next.
2: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. As I just mentioned to Brett, In that previous segment, we are going to do a bit more of a deep dive into the situation in Chicago and the teachers union and the battle now playing out with kids yet again in the crosshairs of these teachers unions. It's so disgusting and indefensible and just even more analyses and data showing that these school closures were not justified last year and are not justified in any way, shape, or form this year. So that's coming up. One other thing I want to just read to you. I have a buddy who is politically basically the opposite of me. He's uh, pretty, pretty out there on the left, donated to Elizabeth Warren, okay? So uh, there is that. I give him perhaps uh, a hard time about that from time to time. And I just want to Read some of his texts that I got from him today. He saw my piece at townhall.com about January 6th, and he saw my tweet where I put out the video of my appearance on Martha McCallum, where I just wanted to clearly state what I said at the open, just what happened on January 6th and why it was a disgrace last year. That can't happen again. And I appreciate he, – he was appreciative that he felt like I was being intellectually honest. And likewise, reciprocally – I enjoy the fact that he is willing to be intellectually honest about his side, quote unquote, as well. He says, very good piece. I liked it. He says so much of the liberal coverage about today is half-baked. So I was sort of curious what he meant by that. He said it's definitely ironic to see the cheering of police and the condemnation of rioting after the events of summer 2020. And I'm saying, why, yes, that is a good point. We had a lot of people on the left Marching against the police, chanting against the police, wanting to defund the police, demonize the police. And yet here they are, these specific police are valorized, I think correctly, by those same people. And oh, this riot was terrible. And yes, there's a uniquely bad element of this because of what it was trying to disrupt. But rioting is terrible and destructive and unacceptable, period. And a lot of the people who are very eager to talk about this riot had nothing to say or mealy-mouthed near nothing to say for an entire summer of 2020 where there was riding across the country. And I'm just pleased that my buddy is willing to make that connection in his mind. because so I think that's something that frustrates a lot of conservatives. They view it as a double standard because it is one. He also writes, the obsession on his side, on the left, with the Capitol riot also obscures Trump's efforts at subverting the election, which I think is is a key part of it. But he's like, you almost lose that in the plot, given the way that they are talking about this and trying to parlay it into other issues. He says, we ought to be having a serious debate about how how to prevent This in the future, pressuring election officials or having the vice president tampering in an election. Instead, we get Kamala Harris comparing a riot to Pearl Harbor and 9-11, I would add. But that's his observation on the left, clearly disgusted with the counterproductive nature and the hyperbolic nature of what the vice president decided to go with today. January 6th was serious. I'm on the record, obviously, about that. It does not belong in the same sentence as Pearl Harbor or 9-11 mass casualty events perpetrated by our enemies. It's the Guy Benson Show. More on Chicago and schools next.
0: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
2: We returned out of the Guy Benson show. We are halfway through today's program. And we are now on day two of the school system in the third largest city in the country, not having in-person learning. No school. In Chicago, because the teachers' unions have decided that they're too scared of Omicron and they have a bunch of demands. They are playing the same games. They are drawing from the same playbook that they very successfully did across the whole country for a year and a half. They're really pushing their luck in Chicago, though. I have friends there who are livid. I've gotten texts and emails. People are furious. Even the Democratic leadership in the city, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, has been teeing off on the teachers union publicly. Here's what she said yesterday. Cut one.
6: I will not allow
2: them to take our children hostage.
6: I will not allow them to compromise the future of this generation of CPS students. That is not going to happen.
2: Well, it's happening. And there's talk that it could go on for weeks. After all the harm that they've inflicted already on these kids for selfish anti-science reasons, they're trying it again. It's happening elsewhere in the country as well. This is just the highest profile example. The city of Chicago is calling this strike illegal. I saw one report that they had 73% of the union members voting in favor of the strike, but they technically would have needed 75%. The fact that it was even close... 75 73% of teachers saying we're not going to go do our jobs. These kids have been neglected. These kids have been basically abused, sitting at home, failing, struggling, not learning. Remote learning is just a huge failure for the vast majority of students. Let's do more of it. Because we want what? More safety. The data has shown over and over again that one of the safest places on the planet you can be during COVID is in a school. Kids, teachers, faculty alike. There is more community spread than there is spread in schools. These teachers were at the front of the line in many cases on vaccinations. They could go get their booster shots. Omicron is mild, and yet this is what they're doing. Mayor Lightfoot again urging teachers to come back to work, cut two.
6: The teachers should come to work. If they do not, they will be in a no-pay status. I'm urging teachers, come to school, teach your kids. Your students
7: need you.
2: The no-pay status thing at least might have some teeth. And I will give one cheer. I said this last night on Special Report. Not two, not three cheers. One cheer to Lori Lightfoot because she's trying to get tough with the teachers. The problem is, while it's welcome kind of a too-little-too-late situation, but better late than never, sort of at the intersection of those two cliches. The teachers' unions across the country were coddled and indulged and enabled by Democrats, particularly in blue states and blue cities, throughout the pandemic. They were conditioned to believe that they were not essential workers, that schools were not safe and could be shut down, and it would be fine for the kids, and kids are resilient and all this stuff. That... Nonsense. That, I think, really pernicious inaccuracy took root. And because the teachers' unions provide so much money to the Democratic Party through campaign donations, by the way, that's also our money. U.S. taxpayers, American taxpayers, pay the salaries of these teachers, this is a public sector, a government union, using American tax dollars to fund and empower their political allies in the Democratic Party. It is such an absolute outrageous racket. I mean, I think FDR got a lot of things wrong. Even FDR, who is way out there on the left on domestic policy, he said that public sector government unions should not be allowed to exist. Because they're collectively bargaining against the taxpayer. Anyway, that's part of the reason why Democrats allowed this to go on for as long as it did. And the White House is saying we would like schools to be open, including in Chicago, but we're not getting a sister-soldier moment here, yet at least, from Joe Biden. Because the teachers' unions are extremely powerful, moneyed, special-interest allies of the Democratic Party. So all this harm that's been inflicted on kids... Ignoring the data from around the country, ignoring what's happening successfully for the last year and a half in private schools or in the UK or in Europe, whether it's schools being open, all the masking stuff, we've been through all of it. Then on the flip side, all of the deleterious effects of the failures of virtual learning and the lack of socialization, the lack of academic progress and the huge mental health challenges, all of that stuff is not new We've known it for well over a year, and yet kids, in many cases, were put last, which I don't see how that's defensible. By the way, I enjoy this. Chris Hayes, who's one of the opinion hosts over at MSNBC, very out there on the left. He tweeted this last night, and I feel like he's close to maybe realizing something. He's a smart guy, even though he's wrong about almost everything. He says, I feel like there's a weird memory holing of the fact that last spring Congress distributed one hundred and twenty three billion dollars to K through 12 schools for covid preparedness. That's nearly one million dollars per school. So the big question is, what was that used for? It's sort of the same question that I've been asking on so-called covid relief that the Democrats jammed through on party lines earlier this year right two trillion dollars for covid relief we were warning a lot of that stuff was unrelated totally wasteful and here we have a large school district shut down and frozen because the teachers are saying oh it's not safe enough we're not prepared for omicron chris hayes even points out a million dollars per school was distributed if they're not prepared where on earth did the money go And if there's long lines for tests and places are selling out in two minutes some take-home tests or at-home rapid tests for COVID, when testing was one of the big flashpoints in this pandemic where the government could actually do something, where the hell did all of this money go? It's like it went just into the wood chipper of government waste. They throw money out the door for the sake of doing it to pat themselves on the back and say, see, we're compassionate. Look at the huge dollar amounts. Okay, huge dollar amounts. And we have schools getting shut down for no good reason, with this excuse. And we have massive testing shortages. You know that money is going to other things for political reasons. It was not about COVID. It never was in far too many cases. And these are some examples playing out in real time. And it's so glaring that you've got people who are very much on the more government, more spending, all the time train, like Chris Hayes saying, well, hang on a second. Arlington, Virginia, here in the Washington, D.C. area, their public school said, all right, we had some snow, enjoy the frolicking, but we are back to class on Thursday, i.e. today. See you soon. That was yesterday. And then there was an updated tweet from... A few hours later, from the Arlington Public Schools, quote, due to staffing and the closures of most school divisions, we are closed on Thursdays. We apologize for this tweet. We were overexcited about seeing students return on Thursday. I'm telling you, there is no weather situation anymore here. We had a lot of snow earlier in the week. This is not about weather. It's about staffing shortages and closures which plays into exactly some of the same situations that we're seeing in Chicago. Like, all right, snow's over. See you in school, everyone, a few hours later. Oh, never mind. I want to read to you from a piece by David Leonhardt earlier this week. He's this New York Times reporter who I think is really important and super influential because he kind of gives elite progressives permission to actually understand what the real science is. And he's often... Urging them, begging them almost to stop being so completely neurotic and crazy on COVID stuff. And he put a lot of this into perspective. He writes in Special Report, put some of this up on the screen last night during our panel with Brett. American children are starting 2022 in crisis. He writes. I have long been aware that the pandemic was upending children's lives, but until I spent time pulling together data and reading reports, I did not understand just how alarming the situation had become. The toll, he writes, children fell far behind in school during the first year of the pandemic and have not caught up. The shortfalls were largest for black and Hispanic students, as well as students in schools with high poverty rates. So they talk about equity, and black and brown bodies and all of these buzzwords the kids getting hurt the most by these needless stupid harmful school shutdowns are the kids they say that they care about disproportionate harm to those populations many children this is in the new york times and teenagers are experiencing mental health problems aggravated by isolation and disruptions during the pandemic Three medical groups have declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health. Do the teachers in the city of Chicago care? Do they care at all? Evidently not. Suicide attempts have risen. Slightly among adolescent boys and sharply among adolescent girls. Among girls, rose by 51% from 2019 early on to early 2021. 51% increase. Gun violence against children has increased. Many schools have still not returned to normal, he writes. This is David Leonhardt in Hart and the Times. Worsening learning loss and social isolation. Once normal aspects of school life, lunchtime, extracurricular activities, assemblies, school trips, parent-teacher conferences, reliable bus schedules have been transformed, if not eliminated. Behavior problems have increased. No surprise there. The Omicron variant is now scrambling children's lives again. Most schools have stayed open this week, but many have canceled sports, plays, and other activities. Some districts have closed schools for a day or more, despite evidence that most children struggle to learn remotely. Hart writes, for the past two years, large parts of American society have decided harming children was an unavoidable side effect of COVID-19. And that was probably true in the spring of 2020. But the approach has been less defensible i would argue indefensible for the past year and a half as we have learned more about both covid and the extent of children suffering from pandemic restrictions data now suggests that many changes to school routines are of questionable value in controlling the virus's spread some researchers are skeptical that school closures reduce COVID cases in most instances other interventions like forcing students to sit apart from their friends at lunch may also have little benefit. One reason, severe versions of COVID, including long COVID, are extremely rare in children. For them, the virus resembles a typical flu. Children face more risk, he writes. This is true. This is absolutely factually accurate. Children face more risk from car rides than from COVID. His piece goes on, but I wanted to read that to you. I hope that is starting to sink in with more people, but there are a lot of folks who have been complicit in this harm for a long time. These revelations that he just outlined and summarized, they're not really revelations. I should take that back. They're summaries of revelations that have come to light for more than a year, and yet the harm persisted. On the panel last night on Fox News Channel, I said maybe the only good news in all of this, and there's not a lot, certainly not for the kids who have struggled so mightily, who have had such a difficult time and continue to in places like Chicago and elsewhere, but maybe the one piece of good news is what conservatives have been saying about the teachers' unions for years has been vindicated in technicolor high definition like an infomercial for the last two years. I was talking to a friend about this, and she said what's happening in Chicago is like the Super Bowl commercial for school choice and against the teachers' unions. And maybe you've got some parents and some other policymakers who are finally waking up and recognizing forcing children and families to be beholden and trapped in government schools controlled by these people is not acceptable. And in some respects, it's a civil rights issue. It's certainly an equity issue, if that's something you purport to care about. I got some pushback for what I said, but I think the pushback was weak. And in fact, producer Christine has a little story that plays into my point. We'll get to that as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we continue on The Guy Benson Show, so I made a mini version of my previous segment rant On with Brett Bayer and company on the panel last night on a special report. And I posted the video, Quiet Wyatt cut it for us. And I got some pushback from teachers and their defenders. And with all due respect, some of it was just rooted, I think, in real ignorance of the data. And sort of saying, oh, these teachers just want to avoid getting COVID. What's so wrong with that? There's a lot wrong with that framing. And I addressed, in fact, some of those points in the last segment. If you miss it, you can go back. You can check out the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. But one of the comments was, well, I bet you you don't have any kids. Because if you ask a kid if they want to stay home or go into school, I guarantee you they'll want to stay home. Now, I don't have any kids yet. I have lots of friends with kids. And part of the reason I'm so passionate about this issue is because I'm seeing what's happening in their lives with their families, the frustration, the helplessness in some cases, what's being done to their kids. Right? It's personal in addition to the policy and the data. And on one hand, I saw Dr. Sapphire actually respond to the tweet saying, yeah, my kid would also, if I asked, be willing to eat a gallon of ice cream every day. doesn't mean it's good for them. Part of being a parent is making sure you're making good decisions and having them out of school is a terrible decision. That's a paraphrase of her response. Of course, that's a good point. There's another point, which is there's a lot of kids who have been desperate to be back in school and back to normal with their peers learning in person. They've been deprived of it for the better part of a year and a half. Some of them are still indefensibly being deprived of it. And Producer Christine, you were giving an example your own daughter. If we're going to do a battle of anecdotes here, tell us quickly about... Megan's reaction when she, having tested positive and having to wait and then go back to school, when she had to do virtual learning again last week, how did that go?
1: It was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And now, Megan, listen, Dr. Sapphire is right. I mean, is Megan going to be begging me to go to school? No. But was Megan begging me not to have to make her do virtual? Yes. She. I've never seen Megan cry this much. Carry on. I could hear the teachers. They're not equipped to do this very well, and they don't have a lot of patience. And honestly, at one point, I just said to Megan, turn the computer off. We'll figure we'll figure this out somehow, but I can't have you this upset. I've never seen her this upset going to school, ever. Yep. I've never and, seen And Megan she's not
7: stressed.
2: alone. She's not alone. And the people who are like, kids are resilient, and virtual learning works. Um, kids are resilient. That's true. They're especially physically resilient when they get covid We are learning and have been learning for more than a year. They are much less resilient against the harm that is being perpetrated upon them by selfish anti-science adults. Exhibit A, the Chicago Public Teachers Union for shame. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up next, Andy McCarthy is with us when we return. On this Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show, happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious and refreshing all year round. TheLongDrink.com. can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding due to popular demand all across the country. If they're not sold near you yet, TheLongDrink.com, you can order online. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Our website here at the show, for people of all ages, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is on demand, around the clock, as soon as the show ends, and it is free. dot com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are pleased to welcome back Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books, his most recent – is Ball of Collusion. I follow him on Twitter, you can, too, at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you. Guy, Happy New Year. Great to be with you. Let's talk a bit about what happened a year ago. I wonder what your reflections are today on what happened 365 days ago and where we stand in today's political climate as we look back on that event.
4: Well, you know, I think it's a blight on... Our history I remember being furious watching it unfold at the time because those of us who have some historical perspective um, I don't think you have to buy into the insurrection politicized rhetoric to realize that uh, we lost something precious in the sense that we had created a norm in our country for democratic republics on the lawful peaceful transfer of power and while I don't think the norm is gone Uh, it's certainly, uh, this is a dark chapter and it's not what it used to be.
2: There are some, and we'll get to the left in a second, but there are some on the right who sort of excuse it or poo-poo it or downplay it and have turned it into something other than what it so viscerally obviously was as it was unfolding. And I wonder, is that just tribal politics? Is that a precursor of something? I know that there's a lot of sort of fear on the left that this could just be a dry run. I'm not sure about that. I think most conservatives were appalled by what happened. But there seems to be at least some revisionism on the right, trying to make it into something that it wasn't or or kind of blame others or say this isn't really a news story. But, I mean, clearly what happened was extremely newsworthy. I think it was an utter disgrace. Uh, It was criminal for the
4: people who were involved in it. It was impeachable uh, as far as President Trump is concerned. I think the revisionist history guy is playing on something that does resonate with people, which is that we have a two-tiered justice system where politically motivated violence on the left, uh, the authorities tend to look the other way, particularly the the party in power now at the federal (laughs) government. Um, But that doesn't, you know, I I mean, it's an old saw that two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, And the fact of the matter is, this was a disgrace, and uh, I think it's incumbent on everyone to call it out as such.
2: One thing that I said earlier in the show, and that I wrote at townhall.com today, and it's something that I don't want to belabor, and it's not something that I beat the drum on constantly. However, it's something that you and I talked about repeatedly during that period between the election of 2020 and the inauguration of President Biden, the reason that there was a riot at the Capitol, the reason that there was bloodshed and chaos and violence was because there were a lot of people told a lie repeatedly by the president and some of his allies. The lie being that the election was effectively stolen from Donald Trump and given to Joe Biden and it wasn't legitimate and it was rigged. And some people really took that to heart and decided that they were going to try to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power in a key signpost along that road and that process and you are as conservative as they come andy and you are also a very sharp legal mind you were watching and this is i don't want to necessarily dwell on this too long but i think it's important because people bristle sometimes at the the framing or the assertion that i make that trump was lying about the election i believe that to be true because his campaign, his lawyers had many opportunities to prove his claims in court. You followed those cases very closely at the time, and they were never able to make that case or even really come close to making the case that the election had been stolen from him. And I just wonder, from a legal perspective, would you comment on that just for the record a year later?
4: Yeah, I, I think I, you were good enough uh, both to have me on uh, during that whole two-months escapade where we covered the litigation in depth. And I would underscore for people, you're also kind enough to mention my book, Ball of Collusion. I'm not an anti-Trumper. I never was a never-Trumper. Uh, I, I uh, recommended that people uh, elect Trump rather than Biden in the election before all of this happened. And the book I wrote was in defense of Trump because I thought he was being uh, subjected to a defamatory political Uh, narrative so I'm not someone who which he was
2: on the Russia stuff as it turns out in a lot of ways he was right so that's important but then in the court proceedings
4: in the two months from uh, you know election day until Biden got inaugurated or uh, up till the uh, Capitol riot uh, he basically did what uh, I defended him from being done to him which is that he perpetrated a huge political lie on people, and while I don't think he is criminally culpable because there's no evidence that he intended violence, which is what you would have to prove to indict him, indictable is obviously different from impeachable, Um, so I don't think he's criminally culpable for the riot, but uh, the riot does not happen without the two months that went before and the big lie and people being stoked up with the idea that the election had been stolen from the Mm -hmm. rightful winner, and that was just awful.
2: Including that day, right? The speech that day. And then they were just steps from the Capitol. The rest, as we know, is history. And Andy watched with a very close, you know, hawk eagle eye every element of those legal challenges. And if there were something there, if there were evidence, Andy would write that. And he didn't write that because it wasn't the case. And it's important sometimes to just reiterate the facts because there are a lot of people out there who still believe Joe Biden didn't really win. Just as there were a lot of rank-and-file Democrats who told pollsters in 2017 that Trump didn't legitimately win, which, of course, Trump did in 2016. And I think the delegitimizing impulse in our politics is a pernicious one and a toxic one when people don't get their way. And January 6th is not a both-sides event There's one side that's at fault, but the phenomenon of delegitimizing your opponent and trying to pretend that uh, he or she isn't really, truly, legitimately in charge after they win, that is a both-sides phenomenon, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. All right, Andy, I want to ask you about a completely different subject, which is crime and New York City, and these are issues close to your heart based on your background as a prosecutor— and your background as a New Yorker, the new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, has been saying some very interesting things. He put out basically this memo describing his philosophy on enforcing the law, which is, put bluntly, uh, to not enforce much of the law and not imprison a lot of people for crimes that have been really forever imprisonable offenses. And someone asked him, one of our Colleagues asked him, is this giving free reign effectively to criminals? And he said, no. Well, it depends how you define criminal. And that, I think, sort of speaks precisely to the issue. It seems like New York City is going to have someone running the show when it comes to law enforcement who is going to be following the playbook of what we've seen in Philadelphia and San Francisco and Los Angeles and other places where people charged with enforcing the law are – more or less turning a blind eye to crime or defining down crime and going about their business in a way, in some respects, that could be described as pro-crime. And I wonder what your reaction is to that and what you think it means for New York City, particularly under a new mayor who's much more law and order than his predecessor.
4: Yeah, I think, Guy, that this is more outrageous because of the very track record that you've just described. And the other phenomenon about it that's troubling is that, you know, we talk a lot about federal politics where, uh, you know, positions like attorney general are appointed positions and everybody reports to the executive branch. In New York and in most of the country, uh, prosecutor positions are elected positions and there's not like a straight line reporting authority to the mayor. So if the district attorney doesn't enforce the law, the mayor, it's not like the president can bring the attorney general in and say, you know, what's going on here Mayor fire Mayor can't make the right. He can't. So, you know, the, the sad thing about all of this is twofold. One is we know where this goes because we've seen it again and again and again. If you're going to get explosions of crime, including violent crime, and it's going to be visited on uh, the most vulnerable communities in whose name. Uh, these quote-unquote reforms uh, are done. But secondly, you know, as I said, these are elected positions, and you have to wonder at a certain point, why do people keep
2: voting for this? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, part of the tragedy. If the voters experience an explosion in crime, and when you send a signal, this is the thing, Andy, people respond to incentives, especially criminals. So if you send the message, we are not going to enforce a bunch of crimes, And there's a bunch of crimes out there, including some felonies that we're just not going to send you to prison for anymore. Because of equity and justice, you are broadcasting to the community and to the criminal community that things are about to get a lot easier on them, and they can start to push the limits because you're telling them explicitly that the limits don't really mean very much. And so in the meantime, you have law-abiding people who are – not in favor of any of this, who will be impacted by it in some ways, uh, tragically, there'll be horrible cases to come, as we've seen in some of these major left-wing cities across the country, and I know that there's sometimes uh, maybe a temptation on the right to say, well, these people get what they vote for, good luck, but in a much more high-profile election, we can say the mayor election in New York City, Eric Adams won a Democratic primary by being a tough-on-crime guy, a former cop himself, and then won his position against another tough-on-crime candidate who is the Republican. I mean, the voters of New York clearly do not want what's happening, but the district attorney, who, as you point out, himself, has a charge from at least some of the voters, he's got his own track. It just feels like a collision course, and just blaming all of the voters in the city— isn't necessarily i think fair or constructive either
4: well yeah you know, look people get what they vote for but you know a lot of these blue cities uh, i guess red cities are, are probably if you had them uh, be the same thing but uh these are one party governments in a lot of right. these big cities and you get only the district attorney candidate that the democrats run and what's happened in a lot of these cities is people backed, I mean, George Soros is the name that you hear most often, but people who are backed by the hard, the big money that's on the hard left are pouring money into these campaigns that used to be like five-figure campaigns. They're pouring millions of dollars in, which makes it easier for them to win and since there's no one really competing with them, you know, they they effectively buy those seats. And I think what people are going to be disappointed to learn, especially in New York, is that the mayor has a lot of suasion over who the police commissioner is and how the police uh, go about their business. But the police can't get cases prosecuted unless the right. district attorney agrees to prosecute. Isn't this sort of
2: like defunding the police through the back door in some ways where you're not yeah. – Going to necessarily defund NYPD. Eric Adams, the new mayor, will not allow that. He's been saying some great stuff on keeping businesses open, on keeping schools open. It's it's a marked difference between uh, you know between Adams and De Blasio. There's no question about that. But if you have the top prosecutor in the city saying, "Okay, the cops can be really aggressive in combating crime and making arrests and all of that, but we're just not going to prosecute people." seriously for a lot of crimes including some serious crimes and gun crimes and other stuff i mean that you end up kind of in the same deeply dysfunctional place yeah it's worse than that because the only energy they
4: seem to have these uh, progressive prosecutors is actually to investigate the police because the narrative is that the system is biased against the criminal right so
2: and then the police get very demoralized right the police are like well i don't have a system that has my back maybe the mayor does the prosecutors don't they're going to prosecute us they hate us maybe we won't police quite so hard because what's the point of busting our ass and putting our neck on the line to arrest some perps who are then going to be instantly released by the people above our heads i mean it's crazy Yeah, from their perspective, Guy, that's the best-case scenario.
4: The worst-case scenario is the cases don't get prosecuted, but the police do.
2: Yeah, and look, if you're a crooked cop and you're committing crimes, by all means. But there's a big difference between that and persecuting the police and demonizing the police, which is what the hard left does in this country. And when defund the police totally blew up and public opinion wanted nothing to do with it, after it had its brief moment in the sun, it seems like this is the way the hard left has managed to achieve some of their ends, and the result is going to be more violence, more crime, more death, and more misery. And uh, that's unfortunately the reality. And even in these one-party states or one-party cities, at some point you'd imagine some folks are going to say, enough is enough. They've tried in some respects, but uh, the the situation is complex. The problem is complex. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, my guest, here on The Guy Benson Show. He mentioned his book, Ball of Collusion, is most recent of several. Andy, always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. The happy hour continues when we come back. The
0: Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. So a quick update here from the household told you about the tree going down in our backyard with the heavy snow the other day. And it was a big one. Big evergreen. We're in the process of trying to replace it. We can't probably plant it until the spring, March, or April. We have waited for the snow to melt, and it is mostly all gone, although it's supposed to also snow a little bit more tonight, we think. Again, I'm always skeptical of these reports in D.C. because they always tell us it's going to snow, and often... It's just a fraction of what they project or none at all, but they were right last time. So if it snows again, we might have to wait further, but we have a friend with a chainsaw. We're thinking about doing that. There's some tree services we're looking at. One creative idea that Adam had was it is an evergreen. He said, what if we just get some friends over and we just all carry it out of the yard together and put it out on the street and tell the county it's a Christmas tree? And can they please dispose of it that way? It's like, I don't know if that's going to work. It's too big. It's like, excuse me, sir. The tree is the size of your house. We don't think that was your Christmas tree. Although, how could they really tell us what our Christmas tree is allowed to look like? I have to admit, I stopped and I thought about that. That's like maybe a little loophole in the rules that we could take advantage of. Probably not. I don't think I have the stones to go through with that. Anyway, we'll let you know. But we're going to have a big blank, like a bald spot in our backyard so we'll have to keep some of the curtains less less walking around in underwear situation less privacy that's city living i guess all right the guy benson show (laughs) continues on the happy hour right after this
0: you're listening to a new generation of talk guy benson
2: Back here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today on the program, Katie Pavlich, my friend and colleague, twice over from townhall.com and Fox News, joined us. We had a lot of things to talk about in the news of the day and beyond. Here's part of my conversation with Katie Pavlich. I don't know if you saw just before the holidays this hilarious rumor that somehow got started that I was going to run for the governorship in Colorado, despite not living there. Uh, And so, you know, we're still looking at it very strongly, very powerfully. But... Uh, can I start a rumor that you're running against sure. Mark Kelly for Senate in your home state of Arizona can we like can we fake that into existence
6: I mean I I have to say guy I don't think you're the first one to start the rumor but you can restart the rumor uh, <laughs> this is something that's come up a few times throughout the past 10 years, and, uh, but I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs>
2: okay, all right. We'll leave it at that. Maybe one day, maybe someday soon, very soon. Maybe
6: someday soon, maybe never. I'm just focused on my tasks ahead of me, Guy. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, exactly. I have exactly... no intention
6: of higher office whatsoever.
2: <laughs> at this time. You have I'm to say really at just this focused
6: time. on my, my duties now at this time. Yeah yeah,
2: that's, that is exactly what you say when you're about to run. OK, uh, someone who did run for president and failed miserably, but then got put on the ticket anyway and is now vice president, is Kamala Harris. Have you seen this story? Another one of her top staffers has left. I mean, there's been a bit of an exodus. I saw the quote that she is a soul-destroying boss. Uh, I know that just like AOC said all the criticisms of her are rooted in, like, sexual frustration. Kamala Harris's version of that is all the criticisms of her are rooted in racism and sexism. Are her own staffers racist and sexist? I'm starting to wonder.
6: Well, um, according to her, maybe they are. (laughs) But this... Most recent staffer is uh, a young black man who's going to work for the Congressional Black Caucus. So I guess you could continue to say that he's a sexist, but you mm. can't say that he doesn't like uh, the vice president because of her race, because they share their race. Um, no, I think it's becoming very clear that the vice president is a terrible boss. Um, you don't see this mass exodus on the presidential side of the White House. You, can, you know, their argument has been that this is a very high profile job. It's very stressful, which is all true. It is a very difficult job and nobody you, you know lasts for a whole term usually. And there is a lot of turnover just because of the stress of the job. But the fact that she's had this much turnover and the comments that have come from people um, and the things that she says publicly and just refusing to read her briefings, walking right into all of these traps that they then try to clean up for her. Uh, it's very clear that She's having a tough time just in leadership uh, as uh, the vice presidential candidate. But this goes back to the lack of vetting for her right on the campaign trail. Nobody thought to interview some of her Senate staffers to see if she was a good boss, boss, what her leadership skills were, what her uh, her decision making process is. No, they just ignored that and allowed for no vetting. And now all of a sudden we're wondering how it is that we're now just finding out that she may be a terrible person to work for.
2: Yeah, and it goes back not just to the campaign or her Senate office, but even local politics in California. She's had huge churn on staff for a long time. And you you just sort of wonder, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe I'm deluding myself, but if I were in some sort of position of power and, you know, climbing the ranks and at every level of power, I just had a mass exodus of staff, many of whom left very embittered, I just wonder, like, you wake up if you're Kamala Harris ever in the morning and say, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I need to do this differently. I mean, I guess the argument is, look, she's vice president, so it's worked out okay for her, but it seems like the common denominator here is pre- it's pretty clear.
6: Yeah, I don't, I, I've never really understood how people like her make it as far as they do by treating everybody around them like garbage, because I found that you need a team to help you, and you can grow together. And as I say, all those rise in the harbor, right? Um, But I don't think that she has any kind of self-reflection. There's been people leaving for months months now, and nothing has changed with her behavior. People continue to leave. Her, Her saying nothing about, yes, I've seen the reports about my staff being unhappy. We're dealing with it internally, and I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that they are comfortable working in this office. She's done nothing to at least publicly cultivate a better working environment, right? Um, and I think when you're as narcissistic as she is, that you don't look in the mirror and say, maybe I should change some things. You just put it on everybody else and tell them to deal with it.
2: Speaking of blame shift, I want to get to the, at least for the next few days still, the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, a Democrat. I know some people in the press are confused. They want to think it's uh, it's already Glenn Youngkin. No, he's, he's not he's not there yet. He's waiting in the wings. He's going to have an inauguration down in Richmond, if anyone can get there, depending on how the roads are looking, because I don't know if you were back yet from Miami, if this was happening while you were down in the sun, but we had big snow in the D.C. area, and I-95 was a parking lot for more than a day. I mean, there were people stuck, including U.S. senators, stuck for more than 26 hours at freezing temperatures, in cars that weren't moving. It was a complete disaster. They didn't pretreat the roads. They have all these excuses why... So Northam, he didn't declare a state of emergency, by the way, ahead of time to get resources in place like they've never seen snow before. So Northam is uh, sort of lashing out at critics. He's saying a few different things in interviews, including in Cut 32, Katie, he was blaming – he of course, not himself, certainly not the government. He was blaming the drivers for being out there at all. Listen to Cut 32.
7: We knew that the storm was coming. Uh, we put warnings out. Um, why don't you – start asking some of these individuals that were out on the highway for hours. One, did you know about the storm? Uh, Two, why did you feel it was so important to drive through uh, such a snowstorm? And and three, in hindsight, do you think maybe you should have stayed home or wherever you were rather than getting out on Interstate 95? I think that would be interesting to hear that side of. Well, maybe because, Katie, they thought that the government would be
2: Basically competent, and they wouldn't be stuck in their cars for 26 hours like U.S. Senator Tim Kaine was. I don't know. Is that a shot that Northam is taking at Tim Kaine? Why did you feel like you had to go back to D.C. and vote in the Senate? Our full discussion with Katie Pavlich, our colleague and friend, available online. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Producer Christine on the mend, we think. She got something prescribed. Is that helping? Also, has her COVID situation helped her, at least so far, maintain dry January? Questions and answers straight ahead.
0: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Friday Eve. Thanks for tuning in. And we now proceed to what has been a theme all week. Because producer Christine, having feared getting COVID for two years, I mean, around every corner in her mind lurked COVID. She would wake up in a sweat in the middle of the night, convinced that she had COVID. Even if the symptoms had nothing to do with COVID, this is the way her mind works. But then she got it. And she has it. And she's been pretty chill about it. Now that it has arrived, it is almost certainly Omicron, and we've been checking in to see how she is doing. So, Christine, yesterday you mentioned that you had your telehealth appointment with a doctor. You had gotten sort of a consultation with Dr. Sapphire, our colleague here, and she had recommended or at least suggested that you might benefit from some sort of steroid or something. What can you tell us on that? Are you feeling better today than you were yesterday
1: well first let me say i want to thank dr sapphire dr steagall dr manny i have not bothered mccary or Neshwat yet and also my doctor i don't know if i should name him by name but um (laughs) because they have uh dealt i think i think that's one of
2: the only examples in the country by the way where the doctor client confidentiality and the HIPAA stuff actually flows in this case to protect the doctor's identity and information, not, not the patients in your case. So let's keep his or her name out of it.
1: Yes. Uh, So when Dr. Sapphire was the first one to say, listen, Omicron's not really hitting the lungs and the chest that hard. So if you feel like it is, you really need to like keep up on that and a steroid probably would be recommended. So when I did have my telehealth appointment, even though uh, my oxygen levels were okay, he said, let's just get you started um, and see where we go. And I have to say, I, yeah, I'm sure you could hear it. I feel like I've turned a corner this morning. Yesterday was pretty bad. I, probably one of my worst days. And I woke up this morning and I was like, whoa. And then once I took when my When did you take the steroid?
2: And how does that work? Like, so is it a pill?
1: Yeah, it's two pills. So I have take two pills each day for seven days. So yesterday I started it. Didn't feel like it was really kicking in. And then today, I took it this morning. And honestly, by like 9, 10, I started feeling even better and better. And now I just, I feel really good.
2: Are you experiencing any cookie roid rage from these steroids? Maybe a different kind of steroid, but I still enjoy this idea of you, like, turning into the Hulk or something.
1: No, but I definitely have much more energy than I've had for the past, I don't know, 10, 12 days. Uh, it's kind of like that feeling like Mama's, Mama's Juice just makes me happy. Mama's Juice makes me giggle, want to dance, want to talk. You know, It's just making me happy. I mean, probably just because I'm out of the fog of just feeling like I got hit by a Mack truck. Um, and like I, I feel like I could even go take a walk. I haven't really been outside much. I want to go take a walk outside. And you really should be on.
2: outside. Like when I had COVID in August, one of the things that Dr. Sapphire told me constantly every day because she would very kindly call or text every day she's like get outside don't just stew in the air in in this case the hotel room she said you've got to get outside double mask get past people don't share elevators and then go walk and get as much fresh air outdoors as you can that i think would probably speed up the process of recovery i know it's not the perfect time of year for that obviously but i think that the principle still applies
1: well, that's what I was worried about, because don't forget, our weather has just been terrible. And I thought maybe going outside in 20-degree weather or if it was raining was, you know, going to make it worse. So I think today is the day I'm going to get outside. I mean, it I just mentally I feel better because it gets depressing. You know that feeling when you're stuck in basically a room or a couple of rooms for days on end and you're not feeling any better, it starts to wear on you. Um, I'm actually grateful that I was able to work. Because it kept my mind going, you know, and able to contribute and do something other than just sit and watch Housewives all day long.
2: (laughs) You had actually uh, things to accomplish and tasks to perform as opposed to just, yeah, being a a bump on a log, feeling sorry for yourself and feeling sick and feeling sort of depressed. Uh, So we're glad that we've had you here working as well. Now, because of this, you've sort of gotten a (laughs) bit of of a help. Not to say yes. that there's any really, you know, positive elements of getting COVID, but you are once again endeavoring to do dry January, which you attempted Everywhere. last year and, and failed. You, you, you got 11 no, days in no, last year. No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. I did not fail. You I did. don't look at it that way. I look at it uh, half class, 11 days full.
2: Yeah, and but, I think that that's the same thing that when you would fail classes in school, you would say, well, it's not a failure because my... Average was 53%, which means I got more than half of the things right. So to me, that's a win. But on the scorecard, like on your report card, it was said F. Right. So I'm giving you an F because you got 11 days into an entire month and you did not have a dry January. This year, for some reason, I, I had an expectation, I don't know why, that you were actually going to achieve it. I, I, don't, I can't explain why I had that instinct here. But for the first, what, six days and counting – You've had covid so drinking really wasn't much of an option at all, so like yeah, you've gotten like no. a little like a little uh booster shot almost on dry January where it wasn't an option. I know quiet Wyatt had found some news article with some tips on how to achieve a full dry january, and you said the number one tip ought to be get covid, which is to be <laughs> clear not what we recommend here on the show, not that it's necessarily avoidable at this point even if you've got all the vaccines and you do all the things, but it has at least, again, silver linings here, helped you along the way almost a full week into the month where you've had COVID and therefore no mama's juice or related adult beverages.
1: No, no. And honestly, I, I'm taking medication. After my steroids are done, he wants to put me on an antibiotic just to make sure. So that's going to take another week after this, so I'll probably be well into January before I could even think about it. And then I'm just gonna, I'm going to make it happen. This is gonna. So you're just be gonna power first. through
2: because if you, if the first two weeks wow. aren't an option for medical reasons, then you really right. just have to power through two weeks, which is what you almost did last year on your own volition. So if you add the medical stuff plus your 11 days from last year, you really just have to do, what, like four or five days better, and then you're there.
1: Well, I have a question for you. I did not drink – I have not drank since uh, December 26th. Could I take those days and credit it from, like, the 27th, 28th, 29th, like, all those days and credit it to January?
2: You know what? I'm going to give you an answer, and it's going to surprise you. My answer to that question is yes.
6: Oh, really?
2: I, yeah, I think you take the days, because you were sick, and often, and here's why, the reason that people do dry January a lot of the time is because they have way too much to eat and to drink over the holidays, and they need to sort of reboot, detox, et cetera. You got detoxed. Because you mm-hmm. got COVID. So you had Christmas, you had the holiday, and then that week where people often really just like go to parties and see family and have, get a little loosey goosey with their consumption habits, you didn't have that. You couldn't have that this year. You were sick. New Year's Eve, which is usually a huge blowout, and there's a lot of excess when it comes to eating and oh, drinking. No. You didn't do that. So Mm-mm. I. I think the 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st, six days, I think you can subtract six days from your dry January, which would put you at, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. If you can get through January 25th, 26th, I think that counts.
1: This is exciting. I can do it. I can easily yeah, do and I it. Think and can it and I think you can go and have some trust. drinks.
2: Like, go hang out and have some drinks and cocktails and Mama's Juice. The weekend of the 28th, 29th, January, go for it. I think by that point, you've done the month. In my book, and because I make the rules on the show, that's the rule. I think you've made a good argument. I accept it.
1: Okay. All right. And then, uh, who knows, by then, we might be busy moving. So, this, this could just keep going. Imagine I, like go off the hooch
2: for like a long time well i mean let's not get carried away here all right let's let's I know, like I'm baby still, steps i'm in still
1: covid phase
2: yeah you're still in covid it's it's january 6th let's not get too triumphalist <laughs> at this point like wow let's check back in april no i'm saying if you can hold out to the weekend of january 28th that friday night i think that would be impressive and in my book it counts if you disagree out there you can maybe uh, send a little tweet. We've, that's another thing, by the way. Christine wants oh, a, Twitter yes, want yes, yeah, so want a Twitter account. Yes, yeah that's Twitter We can have that conversation separately because we're up on time here. We're almost done. Uh, but if you object, you can tweet angrily at me. But I think that's the final decision here. That's my final answer on dry January rules for producer Christine, who's all roided up. And, you know, now that she's on the steroids, maybe she can get back into her fighting shape to when she was an aerobic champion back in the 80s, which is a very inside reference uh, for regular listeners. But you get it. You you know who she was working on behalf of at the time. Uh, We won't get into that because it, frankly, is very disturbing. And we are out of time anyway. Tomorrow is Friday. Back here with the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, as we like to say. Same time, same place. Have a great night.